0: Doug, it hasn't been all that easy, and Culpepper, and he he joked with me, he said, I know every church planter thinks their place is a hard place, but um, that's what he's doing. He'll be here with us. um, They're in the process of moving to Richmond, Virginia, and so they'll be right down the road from us, and so he'll be here um, on the 10th, and so um, that's where we're headed. Um, This particular morning, all I really want to convince you of um, is that you're a worshiper, is that the core of who you are, your identity is that God has made you to worship. Um, we're, we're hearing the, the death knell, the the end of secularism um, is coming, if you're unfamiliar with secularism, it is a, a philosophy that's been popular in lots of Western countries for the past few decades. Um, that religion, and the thing that we might say worship, is to be put in kind of a private compartment of your life. It's something that you do as like a, a really intense, special hobby, but when you go into the public square, you should leave your religion behind. And in fact, some people have even asserted that people who are very, like they might say religious, are not to be trusted and don't or can't serve as well even in um, the public square. And so that's kind of where we live um, right now, that our religion should be relegated to this private compartment um, of our life and not to be spoken of. Uh, but that's not the way that God made us, and we see the way that it works out, not only in our lives, but in our world, Um, that that is just not a tenable philosophy for any country or um, any person. To try and get at the root of that, when I was a youth minister, um, I'd have breakfast with some of my guys in my youth group, and we'd meet at Primo's Cafe in Jackson, Mississippi before school, and um, we'd talk about some of these things and what it means for them to live for Christ in their high schools. And um, the the silly example that I would give them is we'd reach over and I'd grab a ketchup bottle. Um, I'd put the ketchup bottle on the table, and I'd say, if you decided this ketchup bottle was a god, I bet you would talk about that to your peers when you got to school later that day. Like, if you decided right now, I'm going to be a worshiper of Heinz ketchup, I, I, I bet if you made that decision, it, it would affect what goes on later later for you, and affect other areas of your life. And you have you know, high school guys like nodding along, like, yes, I think that that might affect my life. What we're seeing on a global scale is that anyone who thinks that someone can exist as atheist or agnostic, um, that those, those pockets of people are actually failing. And so to read to you some statistics, if the current trends continue, this is from um, the Pew Research Center. By 2050, the number of Muslims will nearly equal the number of Christians around the world. Atheists, agnostics, and other people who do not affiliate with any religion though increasing in countries such as the United States and France will make up a declining share of the world's total population. The global Buddhist population will be about the same size it was in 2010, while the Hindu and Jewish populations will be larger than they are today. In Europe, Muslims will make up 10% of the overall population. India will retain a Hindu majority, but also will have the largest Muslim population of any country in the world, surpassing Indonesia. In the United States, Christians will decline from more than three-quarters of the population in 2010 to two-thirds in 2050, and Judaism will no longer be the largest non-Christian religion. Muslims will be more numerous in the U.S. than people who identify as Jewish on the basis of religion. Four out of every ten Christians in the world will live in sub-Saharan Africa. And so what you hear when you when you, when you hear the projections and the, the trajectory of strategy is that the world is becoming more religious. You now if you, you notice know, the second one, atheists, agnostics, and other people who do not affiliate with any religion, though increasing in countries such as the United States and France, will make up a declining share of the world's total population. And so what we're going to see in the coming years is that our world is again going to lurch back into a full-throated, robust worshiping of a ton of different gods, but no longer really accepting or giving a nod towards atheism or agnosticism or even secularism, that somehow it's you know is private religion. And one of the things about Islam is that that's 100% not accepted. Um, Islam expects you to carry your religion into other areas, and some segments of Islam even expects you to try to assert Islamic law in um, the cultures and where you are, and trying to bring about Sharia law. So, these are the kind of things in the world in which we exist. And so, it, it harkens back to the fact that God has made us worshipers, all of us, at, at the core of who we are. And so, we're going to look at that um, this morning as we go through Exodus 20, just um, verse 3. We're going to look at how worship is our identity, worship is our tragedy, and worship is also our hope. Um, Jacob, would you turn down my mic just a little bit? I think I got. Crazy when I dropped it. I had a little fumble up here with my my battery pack. So we can thank you. Awesome. That's great. All right. We jump into Exodus Exodus 23. Um, I'll read to us, and then um, we'll take a look at God's word. You shall have no other gods before me. Since this is the word of God, um, let me pray before we consider it. Father, we are grateful for this your word and who you have made us to be. And right now. In the middle of doing what you created us to do, we get to study it and see that you have made us to be worshipers of you alone. So, Lord, would you bless us as a congregation as we study your word? Help us to love you, Lord, more through it and to apply it to our lives. We pray and we ask these things in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we jump into this particular passage. Um, As I said, three easy points. Um, Worship first is our identity. At the core of who we are as human beings is that God has made us to worship, just like breathing, just like our heart beating, and not just Christians, but every single person is obligated to worship. Now, it's no way that you can scientifically discover this, but it is as if if you stopped worshiping, you would die. In the same way that if you stopped breathing, you would die, or if your heart stopped beating, that... Would die. Now, I've had conversations with atheists and agnostics and you know friends of mine, and they're very upset by that. Very, very upset that I would claim that they they were a worshiper until I start asking them, why are you so angry? Why are you so incredibly vitriolic at Christianity? You know, which one of your gods am I challenging that you feel the need to be so angry? I don't believe in God. Well. What do you believe in? It goes through the twenty-two logical fallacies and why those twenty-two logical fallacies can be used to undo Christianity and say, listen, you're just you're just worshiping your own reason. Like like you and your logical fallacies are on the throne of your heart. That's why you're so angry when Christ challenges the throne of your heart. So God has made us to be that way. And not only made us as a part of creation, you probably have read different parts in the Psalms, especially where it says that different parts of creation worship God. Uh, that the mountains right now are worshiping God, the trees are worshiping God. Well, we are created, of course, like all of creation, to worship God, but we're created unique, having been made in God's image. Now, That does not mean that all of you look like an itinerant Jew who walked the world 2,000 years ago. To be made in God's image doesn't mean that our physical faces look like God that means that God made us like him in ways that he didn't make the mountains, or the trees, or ardvarks or dolphins, or all of these different things. He made us in his image and knowledge that we can know him. In righteousness, we can pursue righteousness, and in holiness, and then all of those things, we can worship God like God worships God. Now, hang with me for a minute. That might sound rather self-serving for God to worship God, but God's chief aim to glorify God because our God is a true God and so our God truly glorifies the thing that is of most value and in doing so he glorifies himself which is one of the beauties that we have a triune a Trinitarian God and so the Son worships the Father and the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit worships um, the Son and the Father the Father worships the Holy Spirit and the Son and so God in his triunity in the Trinity are giving glory to one another within the Godhead and made us to join with God in the worship of God. So Adam, when he was created in the garden, was made to find his happiness, his wholeness, his fulfillment, his security, his safety, his significance, all of these things in joining in the worship of God that has been going on eternally. God has always given God glory. God has always protected his own glory. God has always asserted his own glory. And in creating humanity, God invited us and in making us in God's image, equipped us to enter into the worship of God as God worships God. And not only that, he came to Adam and Eve and entered into covenant with Adam and Eve and invited them into a relationship where they would know him and they would be stewards over creation and they would fill the earth with their children. And the children that they filled the earth with would all be worshipers of God. And so both in their stewardship of creation and the way that they had their children, God intended them to glorify him and worship him. Worship isn't just what you're doing right now and sitting on Sunday morning for... A few minutes before you head and do whatever else worship is what we do in the world adam was made to be a gardener and in his gardening he was glorifying god in that vocation that he had i'm not very good at glorifying god in my garden um sin is encroaching in what's happening in my garden right now both in my ability to do it and also in the weeds that keep springing up from the soil but nevertheless in doing that attempting to glorify god and who he made me to be it's a part of who I am at the core of my identity. And so the, the, the first thing, it's such an easy concept to understand, so we're gonna move on, but it's one that I want you to consider and continue to think about for the week. Do you see yourself as primarily a worshiper? That you wake up in the morning and you worship all day long, and you put your head on the pillow at night, and you go to bed to rest up to wake the next day to worship all day long not just on Sunday do you see at the core of who you are you were made to worship now in that first thought we get into the problem of the second worship is not just our identity but worship is also our tragedy at the fall when sin entered into the world we lost the capacity to worship God but we did not lose the capacity to worship and that was the tragedy of sin and the tragedy of fall and how death immediately entered into creation now Adam and Eve would die in space and time and so when God said when you eat of the fruit you will surely die it wasn't that one day in a few decades when we get old and die then that will come true it immediately came true and so death for them was the inability to worship God and the propensity to worship everything else in creation. And so we as a people are constantly making idols out of everything within God's creation. Our capacity as humans to make idols out of the created world is endless. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that you're going to go home this afternoon and crank up your steel chainsaw and you know, take a log and carve a totem pole and begin to to worship that totem pole. It's not what I mean by idolatry. Um, There are cultures that have done that. Idolatry means the thing in which we place our hope, the thing in which we place our security, the thing that we look to for significance, the thing if it was removed from our life, we would think our lives would be over, the thing that we get angry to protect, those are the things that are our gods. And so the Apostle Paul um, in Romans says that so many years um, later in the first chapter of Romans when he's showing that everyone is under sin and continues to sin and that everyone needs the redeeming work of Jesus. He says this, that humanity exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen and so our great tragedy is that in space and time sin and death entered the world and that we have become worshipers of other things and so for God to show up to the Israelites and in the first commandment the key commandments say you shall have no other gods before me all of those things are built in You know, he he assumes, if we're not going to have other gods before him, that we are worshipers and we've been made that way, and that we have a propensity to create gods out of creation. So much of a propensity to do that, those Israelites, while Moses was hearing God, giving him the Ten Commandments, those Israelites all of a sudden figured, where's Moses? He's not coming down, we're tired, this is taking too long. You know, this, this meeting God and Moses, like who knows, maybe Moses is dead now. We need to find different gods. And say so they go to Aaron and Aaron says, sure, bring all of your gold and we'll throw it into the fire and we'll craft a golden calf. And so while God is giving to his covenant people the command to not have other gods, they are literally at the same time, if we could do some kind of like freeze frame, like a TV or a movie, like go to Moses on the mountain, God's saying, have no other gods. Go to the Israelites. Here's my earring. Or, you know, oh, golden calf. This is Godway that brought us out. The Bible, in whole, from front to back, doesn't say, "Hey, there was this group of people that at one time really struggled with this strange thing called idolatry." It says that on the whole, we as human beings, our big tragedy, our big sorrow, our big problem, is that we are idolaters. We worship other things. And it's so important for us to remind ourselves of that, especially in our incredibly therapeutic age, where if you say, hey, I've got some problems, and you go to a non-Christian counselor they say, well, we just need to be able to to activate your potential as a person. I think maybe you just have some some memories that are clogging up what you need to do for that. I I think you just really need to to harness the self-control that's inside of you, I think you really just need to, through the power of positive thinking, over and over and over again, tell yourself what a great person you are and you too can reach the goals that you're trying to hit. That's saying that our problem is that we're not working hard enough. It's saying our problem is that we're not seeing ourselves the way that we should. And in, in truth, it's right, but it doesn't go far enough. Not only are we not working hard enough, We can't work hard enough to undo what's wrong with us. Not only are we not seeing ourselves wrong enough, the answer to that is not to see ourselves better, but to see ourselves worse. You see, the Bible on the whole says the human problem is idolatry. It is that we worship other things. So right now you're wondering like, oh wait, like I said, Joe, I don't have like images in my room. Like I don't do these crazy things. For a moment, consider if God could come down genie style, and say, I'm going to grant you one wish. One sin. You will never sin again. Just, just pick one. Pick one out of the catalog of sins. I'll just grant it to you that it will never, ever, 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 ever happen again. What would that sin be for you that you would choose? Now think for a moment. In that sin what are you trying to get? Is it comfort? Is it status? Is it happiness? Is it security? Is it control? And in that sin, what are you looking to as your God to provide those things? And as you ask those questions, you can start to see how that sin, and I'm sure all of you, it didn't take you long. You know, I, I know exactly what, what sin I would rather not sin for the rest of my life. But did you immediately think that idolatry was the heart of it? See, L- Luther said this, under every sin is idolatry, and under every idolatry is unbelief. That we don't believe something about God, and so we pursue our happiness, and we pursue our significance, and our security in something else. Let's go through a few examples just to show you these, illustrate how this works. Um, school just ended, so we'll go to, to students first, students of, um, of, of all ages. I hope, students, um, that you've been working all year to God's glory in your studies, and you've offered up your studies and your grades to God's glory. He's given you a certain capacity, whatever that is, for learning, wherever it is, and you have done your best. And so you've gotten your report cards, and you look at your report cards, and you say, Lord God, I have tried to honor you in my studies. Well, that can go kind of sideways. If you start looking at your grades for your significance and your identity, that you desperately need to be someone who is smart, that you want to be liked by others because you are a smart, capable person, that you want to be able to have the kind of accolades that come along with academics, and instead of using your grades to honor the Lord God and to glorify Him, instead you're looking to your grades for significance as a person then when the B comes or the C comes, then your life falls apart. Because the thing that you wanted to provide for you has not come through for you. Grades and academics very easily can become an idol. What about athletics? In athletics, especially the realm of athletics, we can see that idols can bring momentary huge success. You look at people like Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps. And at, at any interview, like you, you listen to them 10 minutes talk about their sport, it is so clear that they worship their sport. They gave everything for their sport. And also, especially now later, as those uh, men have reached the ends of their athletic careers, you could listen to the interviews and hear how empty their lives are. But their sports became the thing they worshiped and their idol could not come through for them. Part of my own conversion. I was a competitive swimmer all through high school. My identity was in swimming, um, you know, going up through the ranks. Um, was in a particular 50 meter freestyle and was really trying to make um, junior nationals, which really wasn't that isn't in the grand scheme of things, isn't that great of a of a success. But to me, um, was a really um, big deal, um, and I missed it by a tenth of a second. Um, and I can remember that that wasn't just a oh shucks, like work harder back in the pool next week, try again. Um, didn't think I'd make it to the Olympics anyway, that crushed me as a person. Like, I, I, was, I was depressed for weeks um, as a person because I was looking to swimming to give me significance and worth, and it did not provide for me. You look at even your money, and money's crazy. Like, money can work all kinds of ways. Money can be an idol of power you want to be able to use your money to do things. Money can be an idol of comfort, that you don't feel comfortable unless you have enough. Money can be a, an idol of security. Money where you start to, to trust in your, your finances rather than trusting in the Lord God. You see, we go through these different things, you even go to substances. You know, the, the taking of different grains and the turning them into liquor or beer or alcoholic beverages becomes gods to people. They, they worship drink. Being able to take you know, poppies or different flowers and make them into opiates becomes gods to people where they worship those things, will give up their families, will lie through their teeth in order to worship their gods of substances. We, we find the Bible true in our own lives. We can take anything and we can turn it into a god. It's the great tragedy of humanity that we can and do worship everything and anything except the one true God. And so if the first thing I wanted you to see and take with you is that you're a worshiper, the second thing that I want you to see is that all of your sins, all of your problems, and I mean that all, not hyperbole at all, I, I, I mean that completely honestly. All of your sins, all of your problems, you can trace directly back to idolatry. And it would be a win for the work of God in your heart looking at this passage this morning if you would leave and say, I'm an idolater. I'm not making totem poles in my backyard, but I am, I am worship things, worshiping things other than God. I'm placing my hope, my security, my safety, my significance, my identity, my happiness in things that cannot hold them. I was made to be a worshiper, and I worship all the wrong things. And now we get to the mercy of God. Not only is worship our identity, not only is worship our tragedy, but worship is our hope. How gracious is it of our God? He meets with these people. First thing that I want you to learn, the number one on the list of the Ten Commandments, the one that if you break, you break all the rest. You break number one, all the rest are immediately broken. All the rest are broken. The first commandment, God to say, you shall have no other gods but me. How horrible would God say, hey, I just would just kind of like you to you know, like me on Facebook. We can just be acquaintances, like, you know, just kind of be positively disposed towards me. When I show up, kind of give me my due. Other than that, pretty cool if you live in your life however you'd like. If, if you want to go dabble over there, dabble, you no, know, he's not kind of, kind of God. That would be an abusive parent. That would be a horribly, tragic, awful, horrific thing for our God. But for our God to show up and say, have no other gods but me, is him saying, I have secured your happiness. I have secured your significance. I have secured your forgiveness of your sins. I have secured your security. I have secured your future. I have secured all of these things, and they are in me. Do not look for them anywhere else. The number one thing I want you to remember, my beloved people, is have no other gods but me. How awesome for our God to do that. How awesome for our God to provide that. and not only like to provide that, but to know that we would fail at it and that he himself would provide the sacrifice for it. And so we forget that the Ten Commandments for a small part of what God gave to Moses. So again, I I told you the the Israelites uh, already started creating idols of their own. It was doing the little flash flame, flash flame, flash frame. Moses is on the mountain, Israelites are down here. Well, to get to Israelites down here, you've gotta get all the way to Exodus 32. Now, what happens between Exodus 20 to Exodus 32 is the rest of the laws that God's given. And a lot of the laws that God gave We're around the sacrificial system. You see, he gave them the law, and he said, I I know that you're not going to do this perfectly, and so I've set up a way for you to find forgiveness. You're not gonna work really hard in all of your different tents and tabernacles, and I'm gonna look down on your hard work, I'm gonna say, you know what? You've done enough to pay it off. Instead, you're gonna go to the temple, and you're going to see a bloody sacrifice. And in that bloody sacrifice of a lamb or the goat, or the dove, or the bull, the priest is gonna pronounce something strange over you. He's gonna say, your sins are forgiven. And he's gonna provide a way through that forgiveness for you to worship God alone, ask for forgiveness for your idolatry, and worship towards holiness. Worship your way towards heaven. God knew that we would fail, and he himself provided the sacrifice so that we could pursue him wholeheartedly as the one true God. Now, if you're tracking with me, then what you want right now, the, the tension we feel is, if if Joe, all of my problems, my sins, are an idolatry problem, then how in the world can I assault my idolatry problem? If, if, if it's a worship problem, then, then what do I need to do? Because it, it sounds pretty grave that that I'll worship all kinds of things. Like, how, how can I avoid the worship of things that are not the one true God? It, it sounds pretty dire that I am automatically programmed to worship things other than the Lord God. And we find the answer in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Israel went through this cycle of worshiping other gods, not just like kind of dabbling and being greedy, but like literally leading the nation into apostasy. And so the kings would literally set up Asherah poles up in the hills. Like, sure, you can worship Yahweh. You can also go up into the hills and worship those gods. You can worship Baal and you can worship those gods. We see this cycle throughout Israel's history of this falling into apostasy and idolatry and paganism. And then God bringing them back out and then falling into apostasy and paganism. And God said, hey, one day I'm going to fix all of that. One day I'm going to come. And the way that my people are prone to fall into this deep pit of idolatry, I'm gonna fix that. And finally, he came through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus, in his cross work, did what we needed to assault our idolatry. The first thing he did is he he gave us everything that we've sought in our idols, in Jesus' crucifixion, in his resurrection. He took all of our sins upon him and was judged in his flesh for our sins, receiving the wrath of God for our sins, so that we could receive the delight of God in Jesus, so that we now know the open and full delight and forgiveness of God. Right now, Christian, God looks on you in Jesus Christ with delight and joy and happiness You have not just a kind of, sort of repaired relationship with God, you have the same relationship that Jesus has because through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, he unites you to Christ. And so the delight of God is now over you. So what will you search? What will you find other places? Can money give you more than God can give you in Christ Jesus? It's the classic quote from the great theologian, Jim Carrey. I wish everyone could be rich so that everyone could see riches can't make you happy. If you found a person and you're so centered on a person, maybe it's your kids or your spouse or whoever it is, and they are just your world, they can't stand up under that. They can't be your God. If it is athletics, if it is body image, if it is just control in your life, Can those things come through for you? Can they provide for you what you're looking for? You've already received them in Christ Jesus. See, the challenge of the Christian life is realizing we already have in Christ what we look for in other things. And part of what we do here on Sunday morning is remind ourselves of that truth. And not only that, that Jesus has been revealed to us, not only is the beneficiary of all the things that we can want, but the one in whom those things exist. And so we are a people who worship the Lord Jesus Christ in every area of our life because he is most precious to us. God has revealed himself most clearly in Jesus. When we look through this book and we see more of Christ, more of Christ, more of Christ, we see more of the most precious thing and we want to worship him more. Worship is showing people Jesus and then letting God do the work of their response. When you show people Christ and they've been redeemed by the Holy Spirit, they automatically worship. It is the beauty of Jesus. And the reason that worship and the battle against sin has increased and become more effective in the New Testament in comparison to the Old Testament is because we have a clearer view of Jesus the reason that we see in the new testament more purity and holiness more honor and character more setting aside of sexual sins and pursuing sexual purity more setting aside of greed and dwelling in generosity more being instead of being bitter dwelling in forgiveness the reason the new testament increases the christian's ability to fight against those sins is because in the new testament we have a clearer view of jesus See the more that we see Christ, the more that we worship Christ. And the more that we worship Christ, the more that our idols look to be what they are foolish, empty, tarnished, ineffective. And so the only way to assault sin is through enjoying and loving and prizing Jesus Christ above every else, everything else, and the way to see that Christ is in his word and his his word as it's studied with his people. And so that's the beauty of God saying, have no other gods but me. He not only has commanded it, but has revealed himself ultimately in Jesus Christ so that we can do it. If we can see Jesus clearly, what other God would we choose? It's like Jesus's question to Peter when so many people went away because they were offended by, by what Jesus said. And Jesus said, are you going to go away too? Peter's response, Lord, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? See, that that's the first commandment. That's how those things are wired in. To see Christ Jesus is to be insulated, to be inoculated, to be protected from other idols. And so we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave here. This is my, my challenge, my homework for you um, this morning. If all sin is idolatry. And all idolatry is unbelief. Pick a sin. Maybe it's that sin that you would ask that God would would say never again in your life. Maybe it's another sin um, in your life. Pick a sin. Do the work this week and figure out what is the idol behind that sin. When you sin, what are you worshiping instead of God? What are you after instead of what God provides? And then thirdly, ask the question what have you not believed about god if it's you really want more money and you don't have more money and you're really struggling with greed and wanting more money and you realize well the idol is is money and control and what that money can provide what am i not believing about god i'm not believing that god has provided for me now and will continue to provide for me um, where i am and so i want to trust in god's current provision and then what you do, so you find that thing, that, that area of unbelief, worship Jesus there. This week, if it's you know you don't believe that God will provide for you, and so you're looking for provision in other places, this week, worship God as the great provider. Most 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 clearly in Jesus Christ, who is God's provision for you. So specifically worship God in the areas that you struggle with unbelief that allow you to fall into idolatry and ultimately sin. And so that's how we worship our way towards God, and we worship away our idolatry and sin. And it works in any sin that you have, whether it's physical lust, whether it's unthankfulness, whether it's bitterness. Figure out where's the idol, where's the unbelief. Worship God in Christ Jesus at that point, which, by the way, is the benefit of what we do here benefit of what you do when you gather with one another during the week, whether just in your homes or through community groups, we worship together to perceive closer to the Lord God and to hate sin more, to believe more, and to ask God to help us with our unbelief. And so, um, the song that um, that I asked our our band to play afterwards um, actually sprung a song on them this week. Um, I was... um, Sometimes in, in my own devotions, uh, I sing psalms um, away from where anybody can hear me. And um, I was uh, going to Psalm 81 this week and um, and was singing Psalm 81. And I, I realized that Psalm 81 um, is all about the first commandment and um, and all about God's mercy and grace. When he says to us, have no other gods before me and he could do nothing better. And so towards the towards the end of Psalm 81, um, find it and then well, well I'll, I'll say the part that I wanted to see. Um, there we go. Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. So he's saying, no other gods, but we, me. And then in verse 10, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Isn't that a great picture in conjunction with the first commandment? Have no other gods, but me. Instead, look to me with your mouth open, like a baby bird, like just, just open your mouth and look at me and I will fill your mouth. Take your needs, take the things that you're looking for and all of your idols, where you think that you have need, where you think that you have lack, where you think that you're not getting enough. And with open mouth, instead of looking to those idols, look at me and I will fill it. What an amazing promise. Um, from our God. And so I'll close in prayer and then we'll stand and sing Psalm 81 um, to come, thou fount. And so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, your word, which is true and complete and whole.